I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. As together this evening, we're going to be taking a look at Ephesians 4, 25, 32, and considering Paul's instructions, continuing instructions, to the Ephesian Christians regarding the way that they should walk. You remember, Paul has been establishing in Ephesians, uh, in the earlier chapters in particular, Uh, The story of how the church came into being. He's been laying down that doctrine, telling us how it was we were saved, that our salvation did not lie in any decisions that we made of our own free will. It was not that we were once in a state of spiritual neutrality and God made some offers to us. They sounded appealing and we said, yes, I'll, I'll take that up. But that rather our salvation was the result of God's electing mercies that go back to before the foundation of the universe and are based in the covenant of redemption. And of course, the fact that he alone is responsible for our salvation is not a cause of fear for us, but a cause of joy. For we know that if it was not for his saving us, then we would have been lost forever. We would have continued in that state of enmity. That is, we would have continued hating him, uh, being opposed to his will, and doing the will of the prince of the power (laughs) of the air, and remain dead in our sins and trespasses. But the Lord did not see fit to leave us in that condition. He saved us. And he has incorporated us into his body. Now he's made a pivot away from the doctrine. And now he's talking about the therefores. If all these things are true, if God has done so much to bring you into the family of faith, the body of Christ, the church, the assembly that he is building up, made of people from every tribe and tongue and age and nation. Well, if he's done that, how should we respond? How should we live? What does life together in the body of Christ look like? Or at least what should it look like? That's the great question, of course. And we're going to be uh, contemplating that in these verses. But before we read them together, let's go ahead and let's pray and ask for the Lord to be the light of our minds, shall we? Oh, sovereign Lord, as we do come to your word once again, we are humbled by the fact that, um, Lord, we would not be able to understand it at all were it not for your illuminating grace. We know, O Lord, that we could read the words and understand perhaps their semantic range and nuance and their etymology and so on, but they would never really make sense to us. And they would never, O Lord, bring us to anything better were it not for your working in us, regenerating us, putting your law into our hearts and giving us joy in our salvation, reminding us of our calling, Lord, and showing us that that high calling that we have, that vocation, and helping us to walk in it. This evening, I pray, Lord, that you would focus our attention on these things, that we would recognize that they were written for us and not merely for Ephesian Christians thousands of years ago, but that rather they were written for us here and now. And help us, therefore, O Lord, to remain attentive and to, O Lord, not allow the devil to distract us. May you, O Lord, bring these things home to our understanding. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 25 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole... Steal no longer, but rather 
Let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before I launch into the, the heart of the sermon, let me set before you some questions for you to consider, to ponder as we go through these words. Each of you is part of one or another body. You are members of families, for instance. You are members uh, of this church, or at least attenders of this church. You are here on a regular basis. You are also members of other bodies, perhaps, uh, perhaps a member of a school, perhaps a teacher in a school or, or some other thing like that, members of a company, members of uh, a unit within the military, members of somebody somewhere where people depend upon you, and you are certainly considered to be part of that, that body. Let me ask you this question. Are you a help? or a hindrance to that particular body. Think about just your family and some of the things in it. Is it the case that you eat off the dishes and put them in the sink but never consider cleaning them? When the doggy does something offensive on the floor, do you not see it and smell it and depend upon somebody else to pick it up? Does it never even occur to you to help this poor furry wretch to get outside and actually get some exercise and relieve themselves? Is it the case that you don't do things around your home unless you are told to do so? And this not only applies, obviously, to children, but also to adults on occasion. Husbands, I'm speaking to you. Um, Is it the case that you bring joy when you come into an area? Is it the case that you are somebody who lifts the burdens off other people's shoulders. Or when, do you, when you heave into sight, do people feel burdened and think, oh boy, here we go. Is it the case that you are thinking of others first and foremost? And that it is your desire to edify them, to help them, to do all that you can to push them forward. And not so that you would get acclaim or be puffed up, but rather so that they would advance and the Lord would be glorified in their lives. Think about the various bodies that you are part of. Most importantly, obviously, Paul here is speaking to us about the body of Christ. That is one of the most important analogies that he makes, but he often likens it to a family, and indeed, we are the family of faith. It's one of the reasons we don't refer to one another as sir and ma'am. We refer to one another as brother and sister. We are all part of the same family. We play roles in it. We are also analogized to members of the body, feet, hands, noses, ears, eyes, etc. Are we functioning? in the body, helping the other parts of the body, or are we a hindrance? Are we paralyzed members of the body? Are we malfunctioning members of the body? Are we closed eyes? Are we smellless noses? Are we deaf ears? Or are we actually aiding the body in doing what it wants, uh, or rather what it needs to do, not just what it wants to do? Now, One of the things, as we went through this this, uh, list of of things that should mark the members of the body, the things that we should be doing, I hope you saw that there was uh, a uh, don't be this, but be this, always. 
And indeed, within the commandments that God gives in his word, it's not simply don't be bad. Don't be a bad member of the family, but rather, what is he saying? Be not just a good member of the family, but a profitable member of the family. Be somebody who is helping rather than hindering, doing everything that they can to advance and exalt and to lift up and to build that kind of person. It's the case that in this section, of course, first Paul puts forward a negative, don't lie. But then he always follows up with, instead of, well, just don't talk to people, okay? If all you can say are lies, don't talk. Now he says, be truth tellers. It's not, don't be bitter, but rather be kind. So there's always the, the juxtaposition. And so in the Ten Commandments, for instance, we're not told, you know, when it says, do not murder, that's not the end of the commandment. But it is be promoters of life. Be those who do everything that you can to, to keep life. Uh, when he says in the first line, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, this is not a new commandment. He is actually quoting from Zechariah 8.16. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. But he's saying now to this new body in Ephesus, you have the ability to do that because you have a changed heart. It's not merely the case that you're trying to keep God's commandments, but with a, with a heart that is still warped towards evil, but rather you're a new creation. That's one of his stresses. You're part of a new body. Live that new life. Be that new person. And he says, therefore, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Now, in neighbor, we can think of, you know, all, all people in the parable of the Good Samaritan neighbor was supposed to extend to all mankind, really, that we were to do good to them. But in this context, Paul is particularly talking about the members of the church, our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, and we know that he says uh, that of the members of the church and that he's thinking of them because he says this, for we are members of one another. Now, we may love the people outside the church, but we don't have that common communion with them. We don't have that bond in the blood of Jesus Christ. We do have that bond, though, in the spirit and through the blood of Christ with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are members of one another as he says, uh, so therefore to mark the fact that we are members of one another, that we are uniquely tied to one another. We need to remember that in union, we need to have that, that idea that this person is a part of me in a real sense. And therefore I need, to, I need to do everything that I can to take care of them. In the way that I would take care of myself, I need to be taking care of them. In the way that I would I want somebody to be kind to me, I need to be kind to them. Therefore, we should not injure one another. We should not deceive one another because when we do that, we are deceiving and injuring ourselves. I mean, think about this. In a family, when one member injures another member of the family, they're injuring the family. When one member of the family lies to another member of the family, they are lying to the family. They are running the family down. They are, instead of making the family stronger, they are making the family weaker. And ultimately, therefore, because we're part of that body, we're injuring ourselves. One of the things that I often say to spouses is that if you, you, know, you constantly are arguing and attacking one another, even when you win an argument that way, you lose. Because what have you done? You've injured the communion that exists between you. You've unsettled things. You've, you've troubled the waters. You've created a stink between the two of you. You have done no good. You may feel all proud of yourself, 
But ultimately, the common bond that exists between you has not been strengthened in that. And so too within the family, if you're constantly a troubler of the waters, if you're constantly griping and complaining and attacking and lying and stealing within the family, who are you hurting? As everybody else is unsettled, as everybody else becomes angry and bitter, and there's, a, there's always clouds over that particular family, always lightning going off, always a, a bad feeling within it. Who have you injured the most? Ultimately, yourself. And if you go on like that, are you ever going to do any good within it? No, you'll simply want to escape it. But the problem is, if that's the way you function within a family, then you'll just bring all of those troubles, all of those, those rages and bitternesses and lies and, and so on. You'll just bring it to the next family, the next unit that you're part of. And it will never go well for you. And this applies not just to the family, obviously, because he's not speaking simply within the context of the, of the biological family, you know, mother, father, children, and so on, and, and the servants within the household. He's speaking also to the church. If you are a troubler of the church by nature, and I've seen this happen time and again, a person is a troubler of the church and they don't recognize it at all. And they say the church is the problem. And so they go to another church and, oh, wouldn't you know it, that church is a problem as well. And then they go to another church and they're, oh, they're all a problem. I can't figure out for the life of me what the common denominator in all of this is. It's you, dummy. You're the troubler. You're the one who brings bad feelings and, and bitterness and a grudge and suspicion with you when you go. We can do that in the family. We can do that in the church. Paul is saying that ought not be the case. And it needs to start not with other people, but with you in your own heart. So he warns, he says, uh, and one of the most common feelings that we can have towards other people, unfortunately, because of our very natures, is anger. Now, is it the case that all anger is bad? What do you think? No. no. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There are things that happen in society that should trouble us, that should make us angry when we see what is being done. I am angry on a regular basis at what is happening to the children of the United States on purpose. What we and the Chinese Communist Party and, and all sorts of other nefarious organizations are doing to the children of this nation. It is awful and it should make you uh, alternately either angry or grieved. And it should not be the case that you say, oh, well, that's, I, I can't do anything about that and just step back. No, it should Im impel you to pray and to act as, as far as you can to redress the grievances, to change what's going on. Our natural feelings are not wrong if we're angry about something that we should be angry about. But... He says, don't go from anger to wrath. Do not be consumed by anger. Anger is like nitroglycerin in one sense. Uh, uh, many of you know that a, a small amount of nitroglycerin applied under the tongue is often used to treat uh, heart failure and high blood pressure and angina and all sorts of, of heart-related diseases and problems. It's very important. Uh, that's a little little pill of nitroglycerin, but a big, <laughs> a big jar of nitroglycerin 
Well, um, no, that's not going to help. Uh, that's explosive. And wrath is the same way. A little anger can be a good thing, but when it advances to a giant ball of wrath, it is always explosive, it is always dangerous, it is always harmful. Do not be overcome by anger. Do not be consumed by wrath. Put wrath away from you. Now, what is assumed here, and I hope you understand that, is that if he can give you the command to put wrath away from you, and he's speaking to Christians, understand this, you can do it. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you can gradually learn more and more to bridle your anger, control your temper, control your words, and not allow yourself to be carried away from them. Put away your anger. And don't let it consume you. Don't let it advance to that cancer called bitterness. And he always says here, do not allow that wrath to continue past day. In other words, don't let it, it dwell within you, that wrath and so on. Put it away before sunset, in essence, he's saying. Don't sleep on your anger. The Jewish day, the next day, actually began at sunset of that particular day. It's not, you know, uh, don't, uh, don't go to bed and and wake up in the morning angry at the same person, but make sure that you've put that anger away before you go to bed. No, you should do everything that you can to be reconciled to that person, but even if you can't be reconciled to that person, do not continue to be wrathful towards them. Do whatever you can to be conciliated towards the person to whom you feel wrath and anger, even if that person was the person who started it. It's still incumbent upon you, Christian, to do all that you can to end the wrath, to end the anger. Don't let your anger at someone else's wicked behavior towards you push you into more grievous sins. And by more grievous sins, what do I mean? I mean things like hatred or utter contempt. You view them as a lower form of life because of the kind of thing they do. You, you regularly, without even thinking about it perhaps, put yourself up here. I am a shining example of holiness and goodness and virtue. They, on the other hand, scum and villainy and all forms of evil. I would say you aren't really seeing yourself objectively at that point in time, but anger can impel us towards that kind of, that kind of decision. And when it's done as a large body, it can also lead to incredibly hateful things like genocide. Most of the genocides that have occurred in world history have occurred because one group viewed themselves as holy, righteous, pure, and much better, and the other group as utterly disgusting. That's, for instance, what happened in Rwanda. What did the Hutus call the Tutsis? Does anybody know how they referred to them? They called them cockroaches. These are... Children created in the image of God, cockroaches. You can squash a cockroach and not feel at all bad about it. And you can kill a cockroach with a machete and not feel bad either and just think that you have to eliminate more. That's what wrath and anger and contempt building up can do. That shouldn't be the mark of the Christian heart. And it can also lead to revenge. We desire to revenge ourselves. We forget what Paul tells us, and God is essentially telling us in Romans 12, to, to let God be our avenger. To do good to our enemies is what Christ taught us to do. We'll talk more about that later on. But uh, a commentator 
by the name of Vitablus once said, let not night and anger against anyone sleep with you, but go and conciliate the other party. Though he have been the first to commit the offense, let not your anger at another's wickedness verge into hatred or contempt or revenge. That's a great summary of what we should be doing. And remember that when we do allow that to happen, what are we doing? We're giving the devil a place, a foothold in our hearts, a foothold in our family, a foothold in our churches. What is his desire in all of those organizations but to split them apart and cause people to hate one another and not be able to stand one another, to create division? And he can do that in churches, in families, but particularly Paul is anxious here that it would not happen in the churches. So he sets before us the important uh, calling to not allow anger to become an occasion for sin and not to cherish it. We can think that our anger, because it's a righteous anger even, that it's, uh, it's something that we should nurture, something that we should feed, something that we should go back to again and again. It's a cherished thing. I have met people who cherish their anger. It's always bubbling beneath the surface. Uh, they're like, what was it, uh, Bruce Banner said, that his secret was he was always angry. If you've been on the internet, you've met people who, like Bruce Banner, are always angry. Is it Bruce Banner who's the Hulk? Yes, Yes, Dr. Bruce Banner, thank you. I always doubt myself in those moments. I expect somebody to come up afterwards, that's Spider-Man, incidentally. (laughs) But moving on. No, Bruce Wayne, Spider-Man, Thank you, Arthur, anyway. Moving on, so, uh, but also when we are angry, remind yourself in that moment, step back and remind yourself you are in danger. You are in danger of giving Satan a handhold, a foothold in your heart. You're in danger of worse things. Think. Don't allow your tongue to to simply go wild at that point in time. Certainly don't allow your fists to fly. Don't be like, you remember Jonah, when he was so upset with the Lord. Why was he so upset with the Lord? Oh, I just knew you, you would show mercy to the Ninevites. I knew it. And God asked him, do you do well to be angry? And his answer after, you know, the Lord has destroyed the shade that was uh, covering his head. Oh, yes, I I do well to be angry. So many of us think we do well to be angry. We don't do well to be angry. We're in danger in that that moment. Watch out for wrath. How many people have allowed their anger to get out of control and as a result blown apart families, blown apart congregations, taken lives? They didn't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to kill somebody, but they allowed their anger to go wild to simply rage, and then the devil's work was done in their lives. He also says here that we're to be people who are honest, not just in our dealings with one another, but uh, when it comes to money and items and so on. I'm sorry, the the Christian church is not a communist organization. We we do believe in the uh, importance of private property. We are not to steal from one another. We're not to take things that don't belong to us. Uh, The Ephesians would have been very familiar, unfortunately, with theft, not only as merchants uh, ripped them off in the marketplace on a regular basis, but uh, the hills surrounding Ephesus, I'm told, were filled with bandits. So they had thieves in the uh, vicinity. Well, they're not supposed to be thieves. It's funny, I I, I just, I'm sorry, I just thought about this. Uh, uh, In 
Ray Comfort, when he does the Way of the Master presentation, he's trying to convince people of the hardest thing of all, which is that they're actually sinners. And he goes through the commandments and he says, uh, so you lie, what does that make you? And they'll say, a liar. And he says, so you, you admit you've stolen, what does that make you? And you know what they always say? Stealer. A stealer. They're from Pittsburgh suddenly. It's, no, you're not a stealer when you steal. What are you? You're a thief. And he says, don't be a thief. But he doesn't just say, stop stealing stuff. He says, be the opposite. Be somebody who's productive. Be somebody who isn't dependent upon others. Be somebody who is adding value to the church. Don't just take away from other people, but add to them. And of course, he says, let him labor. Remember this, theft and idleness are always walking together. And the devil always has work for idle hands to do. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. I could go on with proverb after proverb after that. But you need to be busy. Uh, we remember that we're commanded six days shall you labor and do all your work. All right? When we're considering our day of rest, let's remember that the day of rest occurs at the beginning before we go into the rest of our work. Sunday, this is our day of rest. It should be a day where we can, we can sit back and we consider all of the things that have come to us. A Sabbath day, a day genuinely of resting from our labors. But it shouldn't be that we go from the day of rest to the days of idleness. It should be the case that we're constantly set about some vocation. God has made you to work. Work, believe it or not, is not a result of the fall. It was something that was created before the fall. Do you remember that in the garden, God said to Adam that he put him in the garden to tend it. Man was from the beginning a worker, in this case, a gardener. And so we should be working on a regular basis with our hands. And we should always have, he says, something to impart to others, something to give to other people. That's one of the main reasons we should be working, not just so we would be able to uh, advance ourselves and our families, although that's very important, but we also should exercise liberality in that old, wonderful sense of the word. It should be not the case that we are known as misers, that we're tight-fisted, that it's almost impossible to get a uh, contribution out of us. We should not be little Ebenezer Scrooges, but rather it should be the case that we are always looking for opportunities to be kind to others. It used to be that we were raised uh, with that in mind. It was the case that when you went over, and my wife has this so ingrained in her, I'm sorry, I didn't tell her. I was just looking at me like, what are you going to say right now? So, you know, the worst, the worst person to be in a sermon is the pastor's family. I'm so sorry. But um, she can't go over somebody's house without something to give them. And sometimes it's like, we're late. Yeah, I know, but we don't have anything to give them. You know, there's, there's no gift. It's, it, it, there was a cultural sensitivity there that was implanted by Christianity. It wasn't, I go and I'm expecting others to give me stuff, but rather I want to go and bless someone else. And then the acceptance of the gift honors the giver, and you had to go through that, but that, you know, the southern ritual of refusing the gift three times, and then the fourth time, they, they accept it finally. All right, then. If you're not, you know, not going to back down, we'll take it. All right? I once, I shouldn't tell this story. I once somebody, I, I did that, and they're like, oh, no, I couldn't take it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't want to get in your face. And, and the look on their face, like, do you not know how this works? 
It's like going to the market and not haggling. No, you don't just pay the price. Come on. <laughs> In any of it. But that, it should be the case that we're desiring to bless people wherever we go. That's the whole aim of your life as a Christian, to be a blessing, to be light. You weren't brought into this world to be a little storm cloud bringing rain wherever you go and not in the good sense promoting flowers and so on. Rain at exactly the wrong moment. The harvest is about to happen. Oh, it's raining. Be a blessing. Think about that. Be light and salt and therefore do whatever you can to contribute. It, it doesn't, being somebody who's willing to give a gift. And it doesn't have to be a big gift. It doesn't have to be an expensive gift. But a gift that's from the heart, something you made, a little note. I, I, I love older members of the congregation who still remember to send thank you cards and so on. I mean, it's just a small thing. You buy a little card and you write, you know, we really enjoyed our time. Thank you for being a blessing and so on. It's an encouragement. It didn't cost them that much. And, you know, the stamp wasn't expensive. But it's far more familiar, isn't it, than an email or a text message. And it shows... I want to bless you, and I'm thankful for you, and so on. Be that kind of person. Minister. And that's another thing we should remember. In our language, the way we speak to one another, the way we communicate with one another. Now, Paul didn't have to deal with the, the blight of social media at this point in time when he's writing, but it would have covered that as well. Be thinking about how to edify, how to, to stir people up to love and good works, how to be ultimately, and think about yourself this way. You may not be a pastor, you may not be an elder, you may not be called to teach, but you're all called to edify. You're all called to minister to others, to minister grace to them. Charis is the word that he uses, the grace of God ministered by you to others. He says, don't grieve the spirit by sinning as well, but in your speech, edify people. Don't let your speech be foul and repulsive and so on. And in Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He says here, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, there's many different ways in which that, that can be taken. I've, I've gotten into these ridiculous around the mulberry bush uh, arguments with people. Well, he's not saying you can't swear at all. Sometimes, you know, strong men have to use strong words. And if you're in the military and you don't use the F word, people don't even understand what you're saying. You know, I'm like, brother, our aim should be to edify and to change the culture that we're in. We shouldn't sink to the lowest common denominator. I have met many people in the U.S. military, believe it or not, who have stood out by the way they're speaking. I mean, these were men who could, they could have, if they wanted to, sworn up a storm. And these were men who had a very strong character. And these were men who sometimes, when it was necessary, they made it very clear they were disappointed in the performance of the people underneath them. But they didn't have to use foul and repulsive. Or the actual word that Paul uses here is putrid, putrefying language. Language that has the savor of death to it. That should not be the case with us. We should have language that is, even when it's forceful, it is the language of light. One of the things that we are missing in all of our political discourse these days, I, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our political discourse, when we're speaking to one another, is just disgraceful. It's foul, it's putrid, it's filled with, I, it, there, there's, no, there's no argument, there's no debate, there's no, also, there's no rhetoric or oratory any longer. 
We are no longer seeking to convince and convict and to, to set people on the right course. The Lincoln-Douglas debates are, <laughs> they're so far away, it might as well be Mars. Now what do we do? We just swear and scream and, and cajole and lie and run one another down with the most abusive language. It builds up nothing. And what's it doing to the nation? It just makes it, makes it a foul place. We can do that in the family. We can do that in the church as well in the way that we talk about one another. Corrupt communication incidentally doesn't have to include swearing to be corrupt. It can also be lascivious. It can be language designed to inflame the wrong passions and so on. But Paul says, don't let that be the case. Let it be that your language confers grace upon those who hear it, to give grace to one another, to profit one another, to teach one another. And that's what our singing is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a means of teaching the gospel and singing the gospel and getting it into our hearts, whipping one another up and making one another happy in the faith. And he says all of this, okay, should be done so that we are serving God and keeping in step, as the old saying goes, with the spirit who sealed us unto the day of redemption. You're saved. You're headed towards heaven. You're kept safe until the day of redemption. Therefore, live like that. Live like you're riding to heaven. It won't matter. You know, it used to be said uh, by the Puritans, and they were absolutely right. He who writes to be uh, crowned a king doesn't mind if it rains on the way. Brothers and sisters, you're headed towards heaven. And therefore, keep the objective in sight at all times. And there's a a bottom level of, of unhappiness that you can't get to. If you are remembering who you are, remembering why you're here, and remembering all of the benefits and blessings that you have. If you don't have Christ, if you don't have hope, then despair is the natural response. Yeah, if you are, if we're all just, you know, if there's no big difference between you, cauliflower, and meteors, or bugs and bacteria, then yeah, you've got nothing to be happy about ultimately. Your life is absurd. Your existence is meaningless. You're just a brief aberration, a blip. You're a, you're a wet machine. You're just a biomechanical computer that sparks for a little while. You can't even know whether reality is reality and you have no ultimate purpose and then you go away. I don't know why more people don't grieve. I read the French existentialists and so on. I, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, your life is pretty meaningless. You try to create meaning, but it too is meaningless. But you're not. That's not you. You're Christians. You know what you were created for. You know where you're going and you know how you should live on the way. And you're sealed for that. It can't be taken away. What can men do to you? The worst that they can do to you is send you into the arms of your Savior immediately. That's it. They can't rob you of your joy. They can't take away your treasure. They can't steal eternal life. They can't take away eternity from you. All of those things are sealed. Once God has done his working in your heart and therefore... There should be, no matter what our external circumstances are, an underlying joy. Because you know what's going to happen to you. Things may be bad here on earth. They will be bad. You know, I, it, young Christians are always like, you know, why, is, why was someone so, so nasty to me and so on? I'm like, you live in a fallen world. It's the nature to be nasty to people. You know, they don't have your hope. They don't have your joy. They don't have your vision. They don't have uh, that... that 
that joy in their hearts that comes from, or should come, from knowing Christ. What does Paul, not Paul, sorry, what does David say in Psalm 51? He doesn't say, restore to me the intellectual curiosity of my salvation. What does he say? He says, restore to me the, what's the word he uses? Joy of my salvation. Really, Christian, you should be a joyous person by nature. Now, occasionally we can become melancholy. That's normal in a fallen world. And we are afflicted by the world, the flesh, and the devil on a regular basis. But the underlying current in your life should, at some level, be joy at what you have received, where you're going, and all the truths that you know. Well, you are called upon, therefore, if you know these things, and you know what God has done for you, what did he do for you? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a life of humiliation. He made the infinite stoop coming from heaven to earth, and he then suffered that humiliation, and he lived a life of righteousness in your place. He who created the heavens and the earth lived the life of a suffering servant, and then he took your sins upon his shoulders, he went to the cross, and he paid the price for them in full. The pain of hell was poured out upon him in your place, so that you might be forgiven for your sins. And have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, given to you, so that when you stand before God, you are acquitted, judged righteous. He did this, that you might be forgiven. If God has done so much for you, then how on earth can you keep a grudge against somebody and not forgive them? It cost God everything, literally everything, to forgive you. What does it cost you to forgive somebody who's offended you? who cut you off in traffic. They cut me off in traffic. I must kill them now. That happens. How much, though, would we gain if we simply forgave others rather than bearing a grudge or becoming bitter and so on? It's about your heart and the way you should be responding to God. And to be light and salt will necessarily involve forgiving others as God has forgiven you. Charles Hodge wrote these words. I, I find them to be a, a, an amazing reminder. This is the motive which should constrain us to forgive others. God's forgiveness to our, towards us is free. It precedes even our repentance and is the cause of it. It, exer it is exercised notwithstanding the number, the enormity, and the long continuance of our transgressions, that is, your sins. He forgives us far more than we can ever be called upon to forgive others. God forgives us in Christ. Out of Christ he is in virtue of his holiness and justice a consuming fire. But in him he is long-suffering, abundant in mercy, and ready to forgive. That is God to you. How then can you hold against somebody something they did to offend you? Or some way that they have grieved you? You must, therefore, be kind to one another. Now, let me make two quick applications of what we just heard. The first is this. What Paul is telling you here is not, don't be jerks to one another. That's not all he's saying. He's asking you for far more as Christians and members of the body, members of the family of God. What is he asking you? He's saying to you, love one another. And there he's merely repeating what your Savior said to you and to all Christians. In John 13, 34, Jesus said to us, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, but you also love one another. And then in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another 
as I have loved you. How should you love them? As Jesus loved you. Long-suffering, abundant in forgiveness, full of mercy and grace and compassion. That should be us to one another within the family of faith. That should be the way that we treat one another. Second application. You remember I asked you that question to begin with. Think about the bodies that you're part of. Particularly think of your family. And think of the church and ask yourself this. Are you a help or a hindrance within that body? Are you forgiving? Are you loving? Are you kind? Are you helpful? Are you truthful? Is that the way others would describe you? Or are you a little rage ball? Are you filled with bitterness? Are you idle? Do you steal? Do you make others miserable more than you make them happy? Do others seldom ever come into your mind, but you're always thinking of yourself? Well, that should never mark the Christian. And please understand this. If that is you, and far too often we don't recognize ourselves when we're described that way, but that is often who we are. If that is you, the person that you hope hurt the most is actually you. You are the one you rob of joy. You are the one who is causing for yourself endless hurt, endless complaint. You add to your own bitterness. You poison yourself daily. Bitterness is, and it's been said many, many a time, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping other people will die. Honestly, it's not the way to live. But if we would be free from living angry and bickering lives, if we would be adding to the health of our family, the family of faith that we're part of, our own families, rather than taking away from it, and being people who cause people to grow in grace rather than stumbling, then we need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That change of heart that's so critical to all of this, the, the stuff before the therefore, before Paul pivoted in Ephesians, that has to have happened. If it hasn't, I, I'm sorry, you're always going to live for yourself and be miserable at a certain level. And you're headed for eternal misery. Therefore, close with the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept the forgiveness that he offers freely. The gospel offer is promiscuously made. It's made to all mankind. He sets it before you and says, choose life. Accept the forgiveness that you are offered. Repent, believe, close with Christ. Your life will change. Mine did. I know exactly who Paul is describing when he talks about wrath and bitterness and lying and envy and so on. That was me. That was me, my life, my heart. I was somebody who brought misery to my family on a regular basis. I could tell you some funny anecdotes, but I, I know that they wounded my parents deeply every single time I, I had fun at their expense. It did me no good, ultimately. It won't do you any good, either. But don't just close so you'll be better to other people. Close with Christ so that you will be better for all eternity, so that you will live with the Lord Jesus and experience that joy that isn't just for a lifetime, but goes on for eternity. Live like you're looking forward to heaven. Don't let the circumstances of life, the, the existence that we live here on this side, uh, trip you up, make you bitter, make you angry. Rather live with that joy of your salvation always before you. Let's go before the one who is the author of that joy. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would help us to remember all of the things that we have in you. And to remember the example that was set by Jesus. He went through Galilee and its surrounding environs, traveling with uh, a group of men who were often clods, 
who envied, who argued, who tussled, who never got the point until he explained it painstakingly, and who far too often were not following his example. And we do the same thing. But just as the Lord was gracious and gentle and patient and loving with his disciples, you have been gracious and gentle and loving with us. Therefore, help us to have that same kind of spirit with others, to desire to build them up and do all that we can. And let us live with our eyes on the prize, looking towards Jesus, the author 